following is a sermon preached at Grace Church of Orange, California. Join us now as we go verse by verse through God's inspired, inerrant, infallible word. They say beauty is in the eye of the beholder, and our culture is obsessed with looks. Our Instagram culture, we spend so much time trying to make ourselves look good. Our social media world has created people who only want to look happy, and you could be despairing on the inside. And people will go to great lengths to look different or to be accepted. I read an ad from a newspaper in the early 1900s, and it was an ad for non-surgical nose correction, and here was the headline, you have a beautiful face, but your nose? Cultural historian Sander Gilman said this, there was a time in America when the Irish had their noses surgically altered to look more like the British. And then the Jews had their noses surgically altered to look more like the Irish so they could look more American. I don't know what the Italians did. I think we like our noses the way they are, personally. But our Bible passage today is not about noses, but it is about mouths and ears and especially beautiful feet. Beautiful feet. Romans 10, verses 14 and 15 tell us why anyone receives or rejects Christ. And then there's this description of the feet of those who bring the gospel, and it tells us that their feet are beautiful. What's the deal with the beautiful feet? We're going to find out today. So if you're able, stand with me as I read God's word. I'm going to read these two verses, Romans 10, verses 14 and 15. The word of God is authoritative and binding on our consciences. I love expositional preaching because you take what's next, no matter what it is. You just take it next and and see what it says and, and what it means for the people of God. But how are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray you would have your way in our hearts today, all for your glory. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. This passage has five interrelated events regarding God's saving purposes. Uh, They're like building blocks. Uh, They're like perfectly fitted stones that need no mortar. Uh, They're kind of like Russian nesting dolls. They fit perfectly together. The context is, why did so many Jewish people reject their Messiah? They have no excuse. God kept sending people to them with the good news. And anyone believing the gospel, trusting in Jesus, would be saved. Anyone refusing God's terms would perish. These five events are listed in reverse order due to the point that's being made. And it's a series of straightforward rhetorical questions. The idea is you can't call on someone you've never heard of. The good news of Jesus must be taken not only across the hallway in your own home and across the street on your block, but to the ends of the earth. 
giving people opportunity to believe in Jesus. But we do wonder, don't we, about why people don't believe the gospel? When Paul wrote to the church in Rome around A.D. 57, most Jews at that point had rejected Christ as their Messiah. They said, we don't want him, we're still looking for our Messiah. You talk to a Jewish person now who doesn't believe in Christ, they will say, we are still looking for our Messiah. But they would not believe, and so there's Christians wondering, wait a minute, you've got, you've got Jewish apostles preaching the gospel, and how they're saying that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises God made to Israel. And so we don't understand. Why did they not receive their Messiah? Paul answers the question from two different angles. First, he answers it from God's perspective. Why Jews refused to believe was due to God's choice. Every Jew wasn't chosen by God for salvation. That's what we saw in Romans chapter 9. That God sovereignly decides that he chooses, he elects who will be saved. Second, Paul answers it from the human perspective. And he says it's due to man's choice. That man is responsible for his sin and unbelief. And that many missed the person that the law was pointing to. They missed Christ completely. And so chapter 10 tells us that every person is responsible for his sin and rejection of Christ. And we ask the question, we get confused over this. We're like, how can salvation be 100% God and, and I'm going to be held accountable for my sin and my unbelief? And we get confused, rightly so. We, we struggle with it, and God knows we struggle with it. But God is perfectly okay with it. He is the ultimate determiner, and mankind is responsible. Because what he says in chapter 9 of Romans and what he says in chapter 10 of Romans, they're both absolutely 100% true. God's sovereignty and man's responsibility can be called true, twin truths, parallel Salvation is an act that God does, a work that God does without any work from us, and anyone can be saved who will believe. You will have eternal life if you believe in Jesus. And if you reject Christ, you will have the weight of God's judgment against your sin. And what you'll notice is that Jesus did not avoid God's sovereignty what he does, you, look at, you can see in John chapter 3, verses 1 through 10, he speaks about God's sovereign work in salvation, born again by the Spirit of God. But then you see in verses 11 to 21, human responsibility. You must believe. In Acts chapter 2, on Pentecost, Peter is preaching, and he tells the people, you need to believe, you need to repent of your sins, you need to trust in Jesus Christ, and then he turns around and says, in the same context, the promise is for you and all your loved ones and whomever the Lord will call to himself. So he calls them to repent and believe and then says, whoever God has called will repent and believe. And what you'll notice is that God's sovereignty in election in chapter 9 leads to something very personal and heartfelt in chapter 10. 
In chapter 10, verse 1, it leads to, to fervent prayer for the salvation of the lost. And then in the verses we're looking at today, it leads to passionate preaching of the gospel so that the lost can hear the gospel and have opportunity to believe in Christ. God sends people to preach the gospel so that others would, would hear the gospel, would believe the gospel, and call on Christ. And so you see these five events. Call, believe, hear, preach, sent. In reverse order, how they actually happen because of the point he's making. How God saves people, how someone believes or doesn't believe. And you do have all these body parts, don't you? But there's no noses here. No noses, just ears and mouth and feet, literally. Ears hearing, mouth speaking, feet going. Look at verse 14. How then, so we have five rhetorical questions. Starts with how. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? Call. Calling on Christ. That's, that's ongoing trusting dependence on Christ of a believer. You, you believe in Jesus and so you continue to call upon the name of the Lord. You're abiding in Christ. You're acknowledging Christ's complete ownership of your life. You're yielding to him on a daily basis. Verse 13 told us that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That saved is a future reality, future tense reality. The call on Christ is ongoing. So we have this ongoing trusting as you call on Christ. Verse 14 continues, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And believe is the initial turning to Christ. It's where you surrender your life to Christ. You entrust your soul to Christ. You, you yield everything. You say, I'm going to invest everything in Christ because I have no hope apart from him. So you've got the call on Christ where you're ongoing trusting him. You've got the believing in Christ where you're initially turning to him. Verse 14 continues. And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And here is where they understand the teaching. Now they might not accept the teaching. They're going to either accept it or reject it. But they understand what was told them? They, they grasp the message. Uh, there's a personal reception of hearing the message. They know what they heard. This is their opportunity to believe in Jesus. They've heard the word of the gospel, and now they've got to go one way or another. They're either going to reject Christ or accept Christ. This is where they've been listening to the message of the gospel and then must make a crucial decision. In 1 Corinthians 15, if you want to go there, Paul is talking about what a privilege it is for him to remind believers of the gospel. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4, he says this, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That's the gospel message. This is the gospel message that they had heard. Opportunity to believe in Christ. 
So you've got the calling on the Lord, this ongoing trusting. You've got the believing in the Lord, that's an initial turning. You've got the hearing, which is understood teaching. And then verse 14 goes on. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Paul told Timothy, preach the word. Preach here is a specific telling of the gospel. A precise retelling of the story in a faithful way where you present the facts from the Bible. You don't freestyle it and say, I'm going to make up my own message and sprinkle in some Jesus. You proclaim the news to people. You proclaim the news the Bible gives faithfully and you faithfully serve it up to people who need it. How are they to hear without someone preaching? In this passage today, there are two words for preaching used. Evangelizo and Keruso, and they both are translated preach or proclaim, but they are two different words. In fact, you see these same two words in Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, when Jesus goes to the synagogue early on in his ministry, and it says, as was his custom, he goes to the synagogue, they hand him the scroll, the word of God, the Hebrew scriptures, and he opens up the scroll, and here's what he reads. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim. That's Yuangalizo. Okay, that's what we see in verse 15. Uh, announce good news, preach. Proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim. There's the Greek word keruso that you see in verse 14 and in verse 15. It means to be a herald, it means to get up on a high place and speak very loudly and give a message that people really, really need. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, verse 19, to proclaim, K. Russo, the favorable year of the Lord. Now preaching is not just standing up and saying, well, this is public speaking 101, I'm gonna give a speech. It's not getting up and just saying words. This is where you are proclaiming the glad tidings of the gospel message. You are giving Christ to people and, and you're telling them what God has done to redeem fallen man. You're, you're presenting the glory of Christ in the gospel. And you're doing it in settings large and small, one-on-one -on -one and in groups, organically and organized. And this is how they did it in the book of Acts. They went from house to house, preaching the good news, and they, they also preach the good news in public. Pastor elders are to work hard in preaching and teaching the word of God and feeding the flock, and, and every Christian is called to proclaim the gospel. To proclaim the gospel not just in your own heart, not just in your own home, but everywhere God sends you in life. Paul said in Romans 1.15, I am eager, literally I'm ready, to preach the gospel to you in Rome. So he's writing to Christians and he's saying, I can't wait to rehearse the gospel with you. I can't wait to share the gospel with you because this is your life, but also because you're gonna be giving this out to a lot of people, right? In Titus 1.3, he said this about the truth. He said, at the proper time it was revealed, it was manifested in God's word through the preaching with which I've been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. God commands us to proclaim the gospel. So you have got uh, the calling on the Lord, this 
ongoing trusting in the Lord. You've got believing in Jesus, the initial turning to him. You've got hearing the message where you understand the teaching you've been given and you either go one way or another with it, and then the preaching, the specific telling of the gospel message. And then you move into verse 15, and the last question is this. How are they to preach unless they are sent? And sent here is the sovereign timing of God. It's like Matthew 10 where Jesus sent out the 70. It's like when he said, as the Father sent me, so send I you. It's it's you being an ambassador for Christ, an emissary of the king. And the word for sent here is apostello. In Greek, it means to be sent away. You're not getting sent away because you did something wrong. You're getting sent away on a mission that God has you on. You're sent out with the gospel. And then verse 15 quotes Isaiah 52 verse 7. It says, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. What an exclamation, right? And I'm thinking, how are feet beautiful? I've seen some pretty ugly feet. In fact, we're a church that washes feet four times a year, so I would venture to guess that we see each other's feet more time than most people do in churches, okay? More often. And, and, and let me just say, when we do foot washing, we have the men over in, the, in, the, in one of the rooms over there, and there is some nasty water in the basin. If you're not a man, please be very thankful that you don't have to see what's in the basin after we wash each other's feet. You don't want to be the fourth guy to, to use the basin. You're like, it's, something's floating in there. Wait, now it's swimming in there. What is it? And by the way, the beautiful people in my family, not me, but the beautiful people in my family, before they come to foot washing, they wash their feet. They get their feet already. I'm like, what are you doing washing your feet before foot washing? You're getting them washed. I'm going on a hike. I'm getting mine as dirty as possible. I'm getting them washed. Beautiful feet. I mean, most of the guys are like, please cut your toenails before you show up at least, okay? Come on. Beautiful feet? We've got to understand the context of Isaiah to understand what is being said here about beautiful feet. You roll through Isaiah, and there's just some amazing, amazing things. Uh, you've got mountain motifs where, where the watchman gets up on a mountain and gives an amazing message. You, you've got the good news, the glad tidings motif running all the way through because what Isaiah is saying is, God is saying, I am going to save a people for myself through the suffering servant who's going to die in their place. The watchman up on the mountain is going to announce a new reality. In Isaiah 4, the very beginning of the chapter, it says, Comfort my people. Tell them their warfare is ended. Their iniquity will be pardoned. In Isaiah chapter 6, that beautiful, well-known passage that talks about the holiness of God and how there's a sinful man in the presence of a holy God and he's laid low, but God purifies him. you got to have purification before the proclamation. Even when it says they won't believe what you give them. He's like, send me, I'm going. The news is too important. In Isaiah 40, in verses 9 and 10, get you up on a high mountain, Zion, herald of glad tidings. Two times in a row, repeated, herald of glad tidings. It's important. 
Here's what you're to say when you get up there. Behold your God. Behold, your God comes with might, with his right arm ruling. This is the Messiah ruling in power. It says that you'll be called by name. You'll be cared for by God. You'll be recognized by God. You'll be assured by God. And and you know what the prophet is saying? He's saying you're going to sing instead of weeping. Isaiah is filled with singing. And why are the people singing? Because God's going to take them from despair to praise. From despair to doxology. In Isaiah 47, you have this picture of God on the throne. God being re-enthroned in the hearts of his people. He's reclaiming lost ground. He's remaking humanity. It's a kingdom come because a kingdom is coming because the king came to do the will of God. And then in Isaiah 49, the weak become strong. We're, We're building up to Isaiah 52. The weak become strong. And then you get to Isaiah 52, and there's this second scene of God being enthroned. Isaiah 52 is on the eternal edge of the proclamation of the Messiah in Isaiah 53. Isaiah 52 is is talking of the regenerated work of the word of God. And Isaiah 53, the suffering servant who will save a people for himself. And here's what Isaiah 52, 7 says. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. It's huge. Saying, your God is the king. Nahum 1 verse 15 is similar. It says, behold, on the mountains, the feet of him that brings good tidings, that proclaims peace. Who might be saying that the feet are beautiful in Isaiah 52, 7? If it's not God saying it, because God is pronouncing it, but the only other people that would say the feet are beautiful are the ones who believe the message. You reject the message, you say the feet are ugly. So presumably the people to whom the message went, who believed the message... They say it's beautiful. The feet of those who bring that message are beautiful. So it depends on whether you like the message or not. It would be subjective then. It's very easy for us, by the way, to think when we see the word beautiful, to think, well, that just means what we think is beautiful. But beautiful in, in almost every culture is a moving target. Well, maybe it means beauty seen and and observable loveliness and and characteristics. But see, we evaluate those things and then we either agree or disagree about them in every day and in every age. When we see this exclamation, how beautiful, we think it means something we can see with our eyes and enjoy or something we describe as a characteristic or as an outcome. Except that's not what this word means in the context. Isaiah uses the word beautiful in in five other places the way that we think of the word beautiful, but not here. This word beautiful is a different word than the normal word you would think of as beauty and and loveliness. I think the most interesting word in this passage is, is this word beautiful here. It's also the most surprising. So it's not beautiful describing appearance. 
It's not even beautiful describing some inner quality. The word translated beautiful is really the word for lovely or a, better said befitting. Something that's appropriate to an occasion. It's the only time it's used in Isaiah. This is the specific word for that's translated beautiful. Again, the word that we know of as beautiful is used five other times in Isaiah in the way you would expect, but not here. Now remember that Isaiah has been saying all the way through, I'm going to do something. God's saying this. I'm going to do something. I'm going to do something. I'm going to do something. I'm going to save whom I will save. I'm going to do something appropriate to the occasion, appropriate to the need. And you look at this word beautiful here, the word translated beautiful, it actually comes from a word meaning hour, like what hour of the day is it? It's a time word. And it literally means timely. Beautiful here means timely, like in season, like you got an apple tree and there's some ripe apples, it's now time to pick them. It it talks about an opportune point in time. And it describes something happening at just the right time. You know how you love it when something happens in just the right time? So it describes this. So how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. Beautiful means timely in this context. So it's like this. How timely is the arrival of the one who brings the good news? And what makes it so beautiful is how timely it is. It's like Derek Fisher winning, hitting the game-winning shot with .4 seconds left on the clock to beat the San Antonio Spurs in the Western Conference semifinals in 2004. If you watched that game, I watched the game, that was what we needed right then. There was nothing else that would do it. He hits the game-winning shot with .4 left. How beautiful! How timely! God is concerned with timing. He's concerned with timing. Galatians 4.4 When the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son. Well-timed. God's perfect timing. So beautiful is a chronological word here. It's about time and timing and timeliness. It's not about outward appearance. It's not about you seeing someone doing something and think that it's beautiful. And think about this. God is doing an inner work in in people's hearts all the time, but we have no idea what he's doing in people's hearts all the time, which is why we need to give a timely message as often as we can, because we don't know what God's doing in people's hearts. That's why it's so crucial, the timeliness of our message. How, how timely on the mountains is the one who brings good news. That herald in Bible times would get up on a high mountain and shout out news. Now, it could have been, hey, we won the battle. You can come out of hiding now and go home, you know. Um, or, or the king is coming. Make yourself ready. What we're crying out is the king is coming again. He came a first time die for our sins in our place was buried on the third day arose and he is coming again that's what we're shouting and guess what he does this king that is coming 
The Bible says that he commands people everywhere to repent of sin and turn to Christ. Those who do not like the message of the gospel are going to call it ugly. This is why the meaning in context is so important to us. That message is timely either way. You reject the message, God knows what's going on in your heart. It's necessary for you to hear it, even if you reject it. But you believe the message, that's the, your, your, your whole life changes. God sends an ambassador in his perfect timing to give you a timely word of life. That's what they said about Jesus. Where else are we going to go? You have words of life. We live in a specific time in history. And every Christian is sent by God to give a timely word in a timely way. For people to hear and hopefully believe and call upon the name of Jesus. We give a message in real time and that message spans all of time. It's an eternal message. God sends believers into their own homes into their schools, into their classrooms, into their offices, into their neighborhoods. He sends you across the hall. He sends you across the street. He might send you across the the sea to the uttermost ends of the earth to give a timely word to those who are perishing so that people would hear the message and could believe and call on him. I'm gonna give you three biblical examples. They're all from the book of Acts. First is in Acts chapter 3. There was a man lame from birth who was sitting at a gate that happened to be named Beautiful and he received and believed the gospel truth. He was healed. He was set free from his physical ailment but most importantly, he was set free from the bondage that held him in spiritual death and crippled him spiritually. God did a miracle at the right time and God's spirit uh, saved this man but it also launched something else. It launched Peter's preaching in Acts chapter 3 that led to something else. And it's it's perfectly timed. It led to the first persecution of the disciples of the church. And it led then to an opportunity to preach the gospel to the Jewish religious leaders. And God is always doing this, working it out in real time. If you move over to Acts chapter 8, you'll notice that Philip is sent, and this is an interesting one, okay? Philip had been in Samaria where you could realistically say there had been a revival going on. People are getting saved left and right, and the Spirit of God speaks to Philip and says, get up and go down out in the middle of the desert. Go down to the road that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. It's really interesting. He's to go uh, 25 miles a six-hour walk, and he goes. He, he leaves a place that arguably is where it seems like he's needed to go out in the middle of nowhere. And he sees a man in a chariot. The chariot's moving. He's walking. He starts running up to the chariot, and he finds out this is a, a, a eunuch from, the, uh, the, uh, from Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, and he's in charge of all her treasure. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship, and he's going back home. He's not a believer, but he feared God. And it turns out that he's reading from the Bible. 
And it turns out he's reading Isaiah 53 about Jesus. And he even, Philip asks him, do you understand what you're reading? And he says, how could I unless someone helps me? And what happens is, the, the eunuch asks Philip, who is this person talking about, himself or someone else? And the Bible tells us from that scripture, Philip preaches Jesus to him. Preach Christ to him. And he gets saved. And they're going along, and they find some water, and the eunuch says, can I get baptized right now? So here's what happens. They have a baptism. They have a baptism out in the middle of the desert. Yes, it was like a little oasis or whatever, right? And sees the water, and he baptized them. And, and you know, we had baptism last week, and um, Luke Dunn, I remember his, because he gave this, his amazing gospel testimony, faith in Christ, and he gets baptized, and his dad uh, prays for him, right? Nathan prays for his son afterwards. That's not what happened in this biblical baptism. Here's what happened. Philip baptizes the eunuch. Then they come out of the water, and literally God transports Philip 12.5 miles away. Uh, It's wild, three hours away. And he finds himself in Azotus. And so the eunuch's looking around, where'd that guy just go? And he just goes on his way rejoicing. He got saved. He's excited about it, right? But now here's what Philip didn't do. Philip didn't go, three hours away? I gotta go back? I gotta do follow-up with this brand-new believer. No, this guy's a gospel-preaching machine. You know what he does? He just keeps on going all the way to Caesarea, and he's preaching the gospel. He didn't rest on his laurels and say, well, I got one. He just kept going and going and going. It was like me when I was a little kid. One time I, I was fishing one day. Uh, we were up in, near Bishop, and, and I caught 10 fish. It was the, the limit back then. Now it's five, but it was 10. And I come back, and my parents were like, um, it's too early in the day for you to be back. Go catch your sister's limit. So I catch 10 more fish. And then I bring those back, and they're like, your other sister's limit now. So I'm up to 30 fish at this point. Then they go, okay, go catch your mom's limit. So I catch 10 more. No lie. It's true. Finally, they said, enough. You're sitting down the rest of the afternoon. You're not fishing anymore, right? But I was just like into it. This is Philip preaching the gospel. I just got to get the word out to more and more and more. And, and, and whew. you know, oh, by the way, Azotus to Caesarea is 54 miles. Would have taken him 13 and a half hours to walk all that way. As he's going town to town, he's preaching the gospel. God's perfect timing. Timely message. People needed. One more, Acts chapter 10. Uh, Peter is, is called by God to go and talk to a guy named Cornelius. Turns out, though, that Cornelius is a Gentile, and Peter's like, no, can't do that. And so God had to show him very strongly, oh, no, you're going. He goes, and there's like a whole household of people going, we're here to, to listen to whatever you're going to tell us. I mean, God's putting up alley-oops all over the place, okay? And so what happens is he preaches the gospel, all these people get saved. God's perfect timing, but he was ready with a timely message. And all of this tells me something that makes me very happy, very glad to find out. A a fresh way to view our function as believers. We we know we're ambassadors for Christ, but I think it's so easy for us to think of the outward appearance and forget about the timely significance. Our availability, our prayer life, our readiness, our, our willingness in season and out of season. 
And yesterday was trout opener day in California, and the California Department of Fish and Wildlife put out their, their schedule, and here's all the streams and, and rivers and lakes that, that fish you know, are, are getting planted in, and so people are just going out fishing, right? And you're like, well, you know, yesterday was the opener. I had to wait till then. Well, don't do that with the gospel. Like, every day is open season. You don't go, oh, you know, I didn't get my license. You know, I, didn't, I, I let it lapse. I didn't renew it. No, 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 you got one all the time, and it's always uh, usable. Um, every day is open season with the gospel. Uh, you're going to places that other of us can't get into. Uh, you trust God's perfect timing. Uh, and, the, and, and then timeliness on our part, really, to be connected with people and aware of their needs. See, so you're sent. There's a sovereign timing of God, and you're sent to preach, to proclaim. That's a specific telling of the gospel. And they are going to hear, they're going to understand they were taught something, and they should believe. Some don't, but many will. An initial turning to Christ, and then they're going to keep calling on the name of the Lord in ongoing trust and obedience. And God is going to just keep sending those he saves. This is what he does. It's not a closed loop. What it is is an ongoing thing that keeps happening. You get lots and lots of opportunities. I think some of us are like, well, but my life's too messed up, or, or I got too many other things on my mind, or I don't have enough energy, or I'm too young, or I'm too old. You know, welcome to the club on all of that. Billions have never heard. Billions. Billions of people have never heard the gospel. We've got to get the good news to them. There's an African proverb that says this, there's only one crime worse than murder in the desert, and it's to know where the water is and not tell. We know where the water is. We got the best news in the world. God forgives every sinner who trusts in Jesus as Lord and Savior. 2 Corinthians 6.2 says, now is the acceptable time, now is the day of salvation. If you don't know Jesus today, come to Christ now. You've heard the gospel message. I don't know about you, but I want to take more chances in life. I, I want to take more risks with the gospel. I, I want to be more aware of what God is doing. And, and I think of it this way. If the God of the universe has sovereignly orchestrated, has, has providentially planned for me to be in a specific place at a specific time with a specific person or group of people who need that timely message of the gospel, it behooves me to preach the gospel to them and not hold it back. Proverbs 15, 23 says, a man has joy in an apt answer and how delightful is a timely word. We are told in the New Testament to make the most of every opportunity. So just begin where you are right now. Pray for the salvation of those you see all the time. Uh, pray for chances to speak to them about the gospel truth, about Jesus crucified, risen, and coming again. Give to missions, especially missions that go to the, with the gospel to those who have never heard. And God may call you to go. Don't close the door to that possibility. You know, they say that, that beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Some say beauty is timeless, Others say it's timely. But isn't it true as humans we are always reinterpreting beauty? Never reinterpret the gospel. It is beautiful as is. 
It shows Christ's beauty. Timely, lovely beauty of gospel preaching puts the spotlight on Christ and reminds us, it shows us the loveliness of Christ. The glory of Christ. Can you see the glory of Christ in your life, believers? Uh, do, you, do you see him as lovelier than all others? Is he the supreme affection of your heart? Shine the spotlight on Christ. Preach Christ. It, it is the supreme privilege of every believer to be known and loved by Jesus. And then we get to know and love Jesus. And then we get to share the message with others that they might know and love Jesus. Wow. There is nothing greater than to exalt Christ, to enjoy Christ, to make much of Christ, to speak well of Christ. And we live in a time-bound world. We're trusting God's perfect timing. Uh, We need to plan well-timed words. In fact, I'm gonna give you some homework. Work on your testimony. Have the story of how Jesus saved you very close to the front of your mouth and be ready to give that out every time God gives you an opportunity. Let's pray together. Lord God, I thank you for the glory of Christ in the gospel. Thank you, Lord, for the loveliness of Christ. May he be our a supreme affection. May we not highlight ourselves, but shine the spotlight on Christ as we love him, as we obey him, and as we preach him. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Grace, please visit our website at graceorange.org.